Hi everybody, my name is Michael Domingue and welcome to Strange Tales of Myth and Magic. In this podcast, we're going to explore mythology and magic and fairy tales and wives tales and maybe some snakes tales. We'll take a peek at some of the strange legends and stories throughout history and how they affected culture and how they affected me as an artist. So sit back and let me tell you a story. This week's episode, The Dance Macabre. A Boneyard Boogie. So what is a dance macabre? Well, well, basically, this is a term that popped up uh, back in the late 1300s, mid to late 1300s, when, you know, the Black Plague was sort of ravaging Europe. And the idea is that death is a personified character. And you would see all these artistic images of death being kind of a jolly dancing character that would dance with the living. So what I thought would be an interesting journey in this particular podcast was that we'd take a look at dancing skeletons and death as a dancer and people who danced with death and people who danced to avoid death and and people who danced until they died. But I think maybe more importantly, we're also going to look at death as a personification, death as an actual character that people can interact with. One of my favorite cartoon segments of all time is um, an old black and white Walt Disney cartoon. And I would be amazed if you've never seen it, but it has a bunch of dancing skeletons and, you know, they're switching out body parts and they're, you know, playing each other like, like, xylophones and you know it's it's craziness and and doing little jigs and and of course you know why not have a little bit of fun when you're a skeleton especially a dancing skeleton so speaking of dancing skeletons now if we head way north into the frozen frozen areas of north america um there are actually inuit tales about a skeleton dancer and the skeleton dancer is named akiini in life, Akiini loved music, loved to shake his booty and get down. But then the day came, as it always does, when Akiini passes away. The problem is, though, is Akiini still wanted to, to get his groove thing on. And he would come back every so often and shake his booty. And it was, you know, the crazy dance like the Walt Disney skeletons, where, you know, he would take off his various body parts and start playing them like xylophones and and using his femur as a drumstick, that kind of thing. Now, this was not necessarily, however, something that was um, harmless, because it said that Akiyini would actually do this often when there would be, you know, ships um, and boats in the waters. And so he on the shore, he would start doing his dance and, you know, pounding away and making noise. And the thunderous amounts of noise was so loud that it would capsize the boats. So... Though the music was good, um, you know, the outcome was a little less than pleasant. So I tried to find a little bit of additional information about Akini, and I, I really couldn't find anything more than what I've told you guys. But um, I did find a band, a psychedelic, funky rock band out of Venice, California, called Akini. Um, though I don't think they've capsized any boats. Um, they do have a song, however, called Knock the Clock Off the Wall. Not exactly the same thing as capsizing a ship, but, you know, it, it's a start. Now, if we head to Europe and we're looking for stories about death dancing people away, 
Um, there is one, though you might not think of it as death, because in this case, the character isn't skeletal. And this, of course, is the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Now, it's unlikely you haven't heard this story, but basically, a uh, a town of Hamlin is 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 filled with rats. Rats, rats, rats. Everywhere you look is rats. And of course, back then, that would have been a big plaguey kind of problem. Well, a piper rolls into town, little little fluty sort of player, and he says, "Look, I can get rid of your, I can get rid of your rats. Um, uh, this is how much I need. Just give me this mula, and um, I'll I'll take them away." And a town is like, "Woohoo, let's do it!" Um, and he, sure enough, he plays his little ditty and waltzes the rats far, far away. Piper comes back, says, hey, okay, did the job. Why don't you give me some cabbage? And, um, you know, give me a little moolah. Give me a little green. And um, they say, no, ah, never mind. Uh, nah, sorry. It's a musician. We don't need to pay you. See ya. Well, of course, the Piper's not pleased with this. And um, he comes back um, one day playing his little doodly doodly fluty thing. And the children follow him away. Now, it's said that this is actually based on um, an actual occurrence where these children in the uh, late 1200s disappeared. And that there's a few theories, and some say that the, the children left on their own accord, and some say that they, uh, you know, left because there were disease, and some say they left because they went to go fight what's called the Children Crusade, which is basically the Crusades, but children were actually um, sent off to fight those. Um, but regardless, these kids did, in fact, disappear. So kind of eerie. So in this case, though, the Pied Piper, though not skeletal, actually is a symbol of death metaphorically. So the, the, when you hear the story of the Pied Piper, it's not literally a guy taking these away. Really, it's about death, waltzing away the living to the unknown. Now, this leads us to the dance macabre. And this was something that was used by artists to be essentially a memento mori. So which basically that is a reminder that we all must go with death when death comes a knocking. And so this idea of death dancing you away is something that became artistically very prominent in the 1400s. And the first, the first dance macabre sort of scene was a fresco on a cemetery in Paris. And it was a series of little portraits of death talking to different people and taking them away. So you'd have death hanging out with the king, taking the king away, and the, the pope, and then knights, and then, you know, you know things like shoeshine boys. And it would basically just sort of say, look, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a shoeshine boy. It doesn't matter because I'm going to come and dance you away. And so you'd see these sort of grizzled sort of skeletons hang out with the various people. Now, this became sort of a popular thing. Various artists would would show death doing that sort of doing a little jig, taking people away and people like, oh, I got to go and dance away. Now, what's interesting about these dance macabre sort of scenes is that death is personified and usually personified in the form of sort of a skeleton, a reaper. You know, we're, of course, familiar with the Grim Reaper. And you really see death as being not a thing that happens to you, but an entity that comes and visits and takes you away. 
Now, some of you arty farty types out there might be familiar with um, what I think is really a great film called The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. And no, it's not about an aquatic mammal in, in the Arctic. Um, it's actually something that takes place during the Crusades and during sort of plague years. And it stars a very young Max von Sydow, who who passed away. And if you don't know who he is, I mean, you would you would recognize him. He's been everything from Ming the Merciless to about I don't know uh, the Three Eyed Raven in Game of Thrones. And Death is sort of this ominous hooded character in the film. And um, yes, he does his little dance macabre and dances people away. Um, but one of the interesting things about the film is that. Um, Max von Sydow, the knight, and Death have this chess game. Um, it's sort of a, a duel. You know, it's one of those things of, of mankind trying to outwit Death. So there's a, a really interesting story um, by the Brothers Grimm. I guess you could call them the Grimm Brothers, too. But I'm going to call them the Brothers Grimm. Um, and uh, it's, it's basically a personification of death, not unlike the Seventh Seal. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting tale about why you don't necessarily want to try and trick death. And the story is called Godfather Death. And it starts off as many Grimm's fairy tales do, and that is with poverty. And what you have is a poor man, and he has um, 12 children, and then the 13th is born, and he just does not know how he's going to to feed them all. So the the, the man decides, I, I need to find a godfather. I need to find somebody who will help care for this child. And so he, he, hits, he hits the road and goes a-looking. So, interestingly enough, the, the first person he comes across is actually God. God is standing there. And, um, you know, and the, God says, hey, you know, I hear you're looking for a godfather. I'm God. And so, you know, I'd, I'll help out. And, and the man thinks about this for a minute, and it seems like a good idea at first. And then he goes, you know what? Um, you know, as God, you're, you're sort of okay with poverty, you know, and frankly, I'm sick of poverty and I don't want to see my kids go through more poverty. So, you know, I think I'm going to pass. I mean, I like what you do in general, but I think I'm going to move on. And so the, the, the man wanders on. The next person he runs into is the devil. And the devil's like, hey, I hear you looking for a godfather. And the guy's like, uh, you want to be the godfather? Yeah, I'll give him gold. I'll give him riches. I'll give him lots of goodies. And the man's like, yeah, you know, you are a deceiver. So, nope, I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to pass this up. I'll see you later. Um, thanks for the offer, but I got to go. So the man continues down the road. The next person he runs into is death. And death is standing there and he's probably wearing his, his big black sort of cape and, and hood and holding a scythe. And that's like, hello, I'm death. I hear you're looking for a godfather for your lovely little son. I'd love to throw my hat in the ring if I could. So what say you? And the man thinks about this and he's like, you know, you're, you're pretty fair. You know, you're, you know, it's like kings and paupers, you know, you treat everybody evenly. You seem like you'd be a fair guy. I, I think that's a, I think that's a good deal. So, um, death becomes a godfather and death disappears for a while. And then later, um, many years later, all of a sudden a death appears to the young boy. For the sake of the story, we'll call him Joe. And so he goes, Joe, let me show you a little secret deep in the woods. 
And so he takes Joe off into the woods, and there he shows him this herb. And Death says, this herb will cure many, many things, and I will make you a famous physician. This sounds like a pretty good deal to Joe, and um, so, yep, he became a physician. And Death explained to him, he said, look... If I show up during your treatment and I'm standing at the head of the bed, that person will live. However, if I stand at the foot of the bed, that person will be coming with me. So do not bother using that special herb if I show up at the foot of the bed. And Joe's like, oh, okay, cool. So time moves on, and as death promised, Joe, in fact, did become quite a renowned physician. Very successful, especially using that little magic herb. And then all of a sudden, he gets called in to help heal the king, who had some unknown disease or ailment. Well, sure enough, death shows up, except death is standing at the foot of the bed. Well, that kind of bummed out Joe. Joe's like, oh, the king seems like a good guy. That would certainly be good for my record to heal the king. And so when death's not looking, Joe sneaks in a little bit of that magic potion stuff and gives it to the king. Well, in no time, the king pops out of bed, you know, doing little jigs. Woohoo! Yay! Well, death is pissed. He is pissed. So he um, takes old Joe aside and says, Listen, I told you the rules. Don't mess with my stuff. I was supposed to take the little king dancing off into the sunset, and then you interrupted. Do this again, young Joe, and you will pay with your life. And Joe's like, oh, okay, cool, got it. Except that Joe didn't get it, because sure enough, the king's daughter becomes sick. And the king says to Joe, he's like, hey, look, if you save my daughter, you know, you can marry her. Woo! Now, how good is that? So you do what you're going to do, and you can save her, you can do it. And then, of course, Joe's thinking to himself... Well, if he, you know, saves, you know, the king's daughter, marry the daughter, someday he would become king. It's all it's all good. And so he's like, hey, yes, I will. I will help your daughter. And so off they go to the daughter's bed and death shows up, except once again, death is standing at the foot of the bed. And once again, Joe, when death isn't looking, sneaks a little bit of that magic herb to the young princess. Well, no sooner does the princess pop out of bed, like, ooh, doing the little jig, the I'm still alive jig. Well, death, super pissed this time, grabs Joe and takes him, takes him to a cavern, deep, deep, deep into a cavern where there are thousands and thousands of candles, all in different heights. And Death says, So, Joe, I just wanted to show you this place. So, you see, the tall candles? Oh, those are people who have a long time to live. Those short little candles, they are almost burnt out. And soon they will perish. Um, let me show you your candle, shall I? So, he shows Joe his candle, which is a stub. Meaning, of course, that, that he doesn't have long to live. And Joe's like, uh, that's me? 
and just like, yep, yep, that's you. Not long to live. You won't be long now. Mm-hmm. And of course, Joe is petrified. He's like, uh, uh, uh. So, so just light a new one for me. Give me a nice big long candle and give me a new one. And it's like, no, nope, those aren't the rules. And Joe pleads with him. He's like, oh, pretty, 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 please. I, I could become really, really rich and, and and potentially king. And, you know, and I have all kingly stuff and, and you know, like furry things to wear. And it would be good. And death thinks about this for a minute. And, and he starts walking over to a really tall, tall candle. Death takes it and carries it over towards the physician's little stubby candle. But just when it seemed that death was going to fulfill the physician's wish, a little bit of wax drips out of the long candle and extinguishes the physician's flame. And of course, the physician passes away. And as death is dancing the physician off to the other world, he says, when one candle is lit, another must be extinguished. Now, there's a little ditty by the composer Camille Saint-Saëns, and um, you're actually listening to it right now. And it is basically based on a French legend that every Halloween... Death appears, and he calls forth the dead to do a little dancing for him as he plays the fiddle. Now, he'll do this all night long, and the dead will be dancing around, um, shimmying and shaking, until the sound of the rooster and the dawn comes. And then, of course, they return to their graves. So if you look at some of the artwork about the dance macabre and you see like the old ones, you know, from like the 1400s, and then you start seeing the newer ones, one of the interesting things that you'll see is you'll see the skeletons actually get a little tidier. Like some of the early, early, early dance macabre scenes of death, um, death's pretty pretty corpsey. I mean, death's really like gnarly and, you know, it's like fleshy and, you know, part skeleton, part rotting, very eerie, yucky sort of stuff. Um, But as the years progress, one thing that you find is that death becomes almost like a boiled skeleton. You know, all the all, all the rotting stuff is often it's just like a nice, pristine skeleton that you might see in like an anatomy class. But I, I'm not entirely certain what the reason for that is. I, I suspect it might be because death becomes a little bit more romanticized as time wears on. And speaking of the romanticized version of death, uh, Franz Schubert in the early 1800s wrote a composition called Death and the Maiden. And the basic story is that death is pursuing a young maiden. And he's like, hey, come with me. And she's like, no, but I'm so young and pretty. And actually, death is trying to comfort her somewhat in, in this and in, in saying, you know, look, I, I don't be afraid of me. Um, you can rest with me and and, and trying to, to make her so she won't be afraid, which, you know, it's kind of tough to do when you got sort of a creepy skeleton telling you this stuff. Now, I had an interesting experience many, many years ago in Vancouver. And it was before I, I moved up to Canada, but it took place in an area of downtown Vancouver, an area called Hastings in Maine. And that area has uh, a lot of down and outs. You see a lot of homelessness in that area. And, it you know, it's, it's really, you know, sort of a, a sobering experience when you drive through that area. Now, 
I was actually driving through and um, there was this big empty lot with um, a chain link fence around it. It was basically the size of a city block, um, but it was chain link around it. And there was just uh, filled with trash and debris and all that stuff. Um, No people inside it except for one young woman. Um, who was in the middle of this, you know, standing on a mound, a mound of trash and debris. And I will never forget it. It's one of those scenes that you just will never, ever, ever forget in your life. And this young sort of gothy looking woman was was in there and she was in the center of this lot dancing like a, a ballet to no music. She was in there pirouetting. She was in there dancing. And you could see Like, you know, some of the people on the streets, like looking in there curiously, seeing what was going on. But there was just dancing, twirling around. And for me, that was sort of death and the maiden. Here she was, this beautiful symbol of life surrounded by debris and decay and depression. Life surrounded by death. Now, not long after experiencing this, um, I, you know, needed to create something that represented what I what I went through. And and so what I depicted was sort of like a giant face sort of with an oversized mouth, almost like a a shark mouth, but but a human face, not skeletal. Now, this monstrous face had, you know, big pointy teeth and um, a tongue protruding. And so on this tongue, um, I had a little tiny dancer sort of doing a little pirouette. And perhaps the dancer is oblivious to the big monstrous face behind her. Um, But I think probably that like the dancer in the middle of the lot, I I suspect that the dancer knows quite well that death is close at hand. Now, it's possible that the girl in that that scenario, um, you know, in the lot was actually doing what is called a tarantella, um, which was a dance done in Italy to sort of basically essentially ward off death to sort of prevent death. Now, this is a very active bit of music and dance. In fact, you might have seen it in the movie The Godfather, the first Godfather during the wedding sequence. They have a tarantella. But the roots of that are quite interesting because it said that back in the 1300s, the dance began because of a tarantula. Well, this spider, however, is not the big honking, you know, creepy, giant, hairy spiders uh, that you see in the Southwest. No, these are actually uh, wolf spiders. And it was said that these spiders would cause somebody to fall into a trance. And the only way to cure that trance was to start dancing, to start dancing around, to doing this frenetic dance that had to be the right tempo and there had to be a certain type of music and and then it would sort of push out all the venom maybe through the pores or or who knows the sweat and and then you'd be cured of the tarantula bite so in a lot of ways it's sort of the antithesis to the dance macabre it's sort of like you know the dance of life it's the dance that kind of keeps you from from having death dance and take you away and maybe that's what this young woman from Vancouver was doing. Maybe she was doing the tarantella and and she was trying to dance out all the badness in her. Maybe she was bitten by a spider. Um, or maybe she had the dance plague. Now, that's actually a thing. Believe it or not, there was a dance plague. And actually, the dance plague 
happened many, many times. There was a dance plague in the 1300s and there was a dance plague. Um, I think the most prominent one was in the 1500s, but it's a plague where somebody starts dancing and they can't stop dancing. They dance and dance and dance. And in some cases, they dance until they die. So the biggest account of this took place in 1518 in Strasbourg, and it said that it started with one woman, and one woman started dancing, and she was dancing by herself, and she was spinning around, and then next thing you know, some more women started dancing. And this is said to have just grown and grown, and you know, accounts have it from anywhere to 50 to, to 400 people dancing and spinning around. Now, of course, there are lots of theories as to, you know, why this took place. You know, some say, oh, it was some sort of psychotropic mold that, you know, you know that somebody ate and, you know, but the, uh, the psychological, some people say it was just uh, psychologically see somebody dancing. Other people start dancing and became contagious. Some people say it was stress, you know, living in the Middle Ages wasn't the easiest thing, but there's, there's really no definitive understanding of it other than it did actually happen. Now, interestingly enough, one of the things that was recommended for this sort of dancing plague was the tarantella. So a lot of times you'd have these people dancing and a little band would would come along and start playing because the belief was you can dance it out of your system. It's not entirely clear if anybody actually died from the dancing plague, though it's speculated because of overexhaustion. Um, people might have died from it. Um, maybe if you had a heart condition or something like that. Now, given all the TikTok videos I've seen lately during our quarantine times, um, I, I can't help but wonder if there's a little bit of a dancing plague going on right now. Maybe it's a modern day version of the Tarantella, you know, trying to get death out of our system, trying to keep it at bay. And, you know, I, I think there could be worse things that you could be doing than dancing. In Mexico, there is a Grim Reaper of sorts, though, though slightly different than the Grim Reaper that we see in Europe. Um, this Grim Reaper is actually called Katrina, and you might be familiar with her. You'll recognize her by her skeletal face and her big lampshade hat. And her image really has become synonymous with Day of the Dead, um, with Dia de las Muertas, you know, which is the celebration of, of um, dead relatives, often celebrations in the cemeteries in Mexico and Latin America. Now, Katrina is the creation of an artist named Jose Bosada. And Bos Jose Bosada was a printmaker in Mexico City um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, he did this etching uh, of her, and um, it just became one of those things that um, stuck. And, you know, you look at her, and she is death. But Latin American death, which, you know, a little more festive, a little more dancey. In fact, Jose Posada did a lot of um, dancing skeletons or skeletons doing everyday things. So you see these skeletons, you know, in some cases they're cooking and, you know, in other cases they're riding bicycles. And, and perhaps one of my favorites is um, a bar scene where you see that, you know, the two dancers, you know, one wearing a sombrero, another woman in her skirt. And you see a band, there's a band playing behind them as they do their little jig. A sort of mariachi dance macabre, if you will. 
Now, I've been to Mexico many times for um, Dia de los Muertos, for Day of the Dead. And I have to say that the feeling that I get when I listen to Saison's Dance Macabre, or even think about the story behind it, about death fiddling while, you know, the dead, you know, do a little jig, um, that you can actually sort of experience in Mexico, though though the performers are actually the living, um, dressed as the dead, as a way of coaxing um, dead relatives to come back and join the jig, at least for a couple nights. In New Orleans, there's an amazing tradition called a jazz funeral, which is basically a funeral with a brass band that accompanies it. Like you're leading the the deceased to a cemetery or leaving the church, um, you would have what's called a second line parade in which there would be a band and then you'd have the attendees sort of dance behind it. Now, traditionally what would happen at a jazz funeral is you would have um, the jazz band play, you know, sort of a low beat, you know, sort of a, you know, sort of a somber-ish sort sort of jazz tune. And then typically, um, after you leave the church or maybe after you, um, you know, put the, the deceased into the grave, the tempo of the music would change and suddenly it would be a big, raucous, um, dancey sort of festival as the people dance down the streets, you know, behind the band, a celebration of the person who was just um, placed into the grave. If you've ever seen the the James Bond film, Live and Let Die, there's a jazz funeral in that. You can see it starts off kind of slow and melancholy. And then with a drop of the hat, it changes into a big festive event. So this is a little bit different than, you know, the dance macabre of, you know, the death dancing the the deceased away to the netherworld. Um, This is actually the living dancing the deceased away and more more appropriately it's the living celebrating the life of somebody who's passed on and they do this by dancing with them one final time now if there's a moral to the stories that i've brought to you it's that um when you gotta go you gotta go but i have to admit that when that day comes, I can think of nothing better than departing this world to a few toe-tapping tunes and some jazzy dance moves. That's it for this week's episode, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to pop in again. There's going to be new tales of myth and magic popping up in the future. So uh, tell your friends. That's always helpful. And um, if you're interested, stop by my website, www.michaeldebing.com, and you can see some of the artwork that I create that might relate to what we're talking about. And if you want to delve a little further into the topic, I'll have blog posts that relate to each of these podcasts. So until we meet again... I'll be missing you.